You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Good to be with you this morning. My name is John, one of the pastors here. I'm our pastor of Family Discipleship. Really glad to be uh, with you folks. If you've got a Bible, flip open to Psalm 50. If you don't have a Bible this morning, ask somebody real nice at the end of your row, and they'll pass you one down from the basket. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift for you. Take that home. And while you're flipping there, uh, I'll let you know it's, uh, it's a good thing that I wasn't on the schedule uh, to preach last week uh, as I was still a little bit delirious from uh, our student group summer camp experience. Uh, we took, uh, I think we got some, some pictures of this. We took uh, about 30 middle school and high school students and about 10 leaders up to camp. Uh, it was a really incredible time. I don't know how many of you grew up going to any kind of summer camp, but uh, some, of the, some, some of the just the givens are that our students uh, formed new friendships. They made incredible memories uh, at the camp. We had just kind of crazy wild games, including one I hadn't really seen before called a color war. Those are some of our high schoolers there proudly displaying their battle wounds in paint. Uh, and, you know, we, we also had just memory-making from silliness. Uh, so uh, there were a lot of massive ice cream cones made and consumed for breakfast because camp's about spiritual health, not physical health. Those aren't actually mutually exclusive, but that's okay. Uh, and the truth is we love all of that craziness. I love the friendship building and the memory-making. Um, but the truth is it goes a lot deeper than that for us. More than any of that craziness, what we really care about uh, is discipling students and seeing students to come to know Jesus and be matured in their faith. And so throughout the week, all of our students had the opportunity uh, to hear from our leaders on the trip. Mostly college students uh, just shared their story of uh, how Jesus got a hold of them, what they chased for satisfaction, what sin issues they dealt with outside of Jesus, and how Jesus is setting them free from that. And then out of those stories, we actually had a lot of discussion time. And I'll just tell you, for me, this is not for all of our other leaders, just for me, I had different students ask me what Jesus thinks about weed, whether or not there's proof that a real historical Jesus ever existed, why their dad wasn't a consistent presence in their life, and how God could possibly love someone as bad as them with all the mistakes they've made thus far in their 14-year-old existence. And like, I, man, I, I love that stuff. I love that they're, I mean, those are real questions for them. And we get the opportunity to engage them there. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, most of Jesus's original 12 disciples were probably 12 to 14 years old when he first called them. And, and Jesus loves, he loves to change the world by getting a hold of a teenager's life and just completely redirecting the whole trajectory of the rest of their life. And so that's why we're passionate about uh, student ministry. Uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart to every one of you who gave so generously to make camp scholarships available. 41% of our students were able to go to camp either fully or partially because you made scholarships available. Thank you so much. You literally made an eternal investment in their souls, and I love that. So I'm gonna pray, 
uh, and then we'll dive in for this morning. Father God, thank you so much that you care about us, small little human beings, and even when we're young, you don't disregard children and teenagers. You love them. You want them to know you, you want to know them, you want to walk through life with them, fill them with your spirit, and and just set them on fire for your kingdom. Show them how every bit of how you've wired them was designed for them to walk with you and see your kingdom come here on earth. And so I pray for our students, God, that they would grasp the the, the gravitas, the, the, the serious weight of who you are and what you're calling them to. I pray for our student leaders as they continue to pour themselves out to connect with students and to disciple and mentor them. God, I pray for our whole church that we would, at bare minimum, be invested in praying for the next generation. And we would see it as an all-of-us responsibility Uh, to see the next generation come to know you and love you and walk faithfully with you, no matter what the cultural pressure and narratives are. And we just pray all of that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right. Uh, Before I tell you the attribute of God that we are talking about uh, today, we're in the series called Worthy, looking at some of God's attributes that he does not share with us. But before I tell you what our focus is today, I want to set us up uh, like this. There is an unpleasant part of life that we don't tend to talk about very much. We all deal with it but we tend to deal with it at a pretty deep level, and it's pretty vulnerable. It can be really hard to verbalize these moments and seasons of our lives. And I'm talking about the parts of our lives when we feel powerless, when we experience powerlessness. Now, my earliest memory of being powerless was actually a relatively positive memory. Uh, it's when I was a young child, uh, and my dad would tickle me. If you have not met Frank Ludovina, he was and is a very large man, and whether he wanted to wrestle and then hold me up above uh, his head or pin me down to the ground, he could tickle me as long as he wanted, and there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop him. And regularly, my dad would tickle me right up until that point. You know the point I'm talking about? The point where all the joy of playing with dad turns into sheer panic. (laughs) Dad, stop. For real, stop. I'm going to pee my pants, dad. Please stop. In a much more serious way, this sense of being powerless happens when we want to change parts of our character or our behavior, but we just can't seem to make it happen. Or even if we see some growth, it never sticks. So for most of my life, I have felt a bit powerless in my relationship with food. No matter how much I try, no matter how much effort I put forth, no matter what diets I've attempted, even if I see good progress for a while, it never seems to last. It's so frustrating. Even more serious level, uh, AA and every 12-step program that I know of start with the same first step. We admitted we were powerless over blank, that our lives had become unmanageable. It's actually really difficult to admit I'm powerless. I can't do anything. Ironically, though, it's incredibly powerful to admit that you are indeed powerless, 
It's the first step to actually seeing growth and change. We experience the same powerlessness when a loved one gets really sick. Now your parent, your close friend, your child, it's awful. You can't do anything to stop it. Anyone who has ever experienced any kind of abuse knows this powerlessness. You just want to make it stop. But there's nothing you can do. Uh, one of my most painful memories of powerlessness uh, was in college when I found out uh, my dad, Frank, was cheating on my mom and then eventually decided to leave her, and I couldn't do anything to make it stop. I couldn't hold my family together. I couldn't make him love my mom again. Couldn't make him repent. I tried. I yelled at him. I begged him, pleaded with him. Dad, stop, the adult version. There's nothing I could do. And so then what did I do next? You're right, I prayed my guts out. I cried out to God, God, would you please do what I cannot do? It's very interesting to me that in the moments and seasons of our lives when we feel most powerless, almost all of us just start to pray. Like it's almost instinctual. It's almost instinctive. Doesn't matter who you are. Don't believe in God, total atheist, haven't prayed in years, can't remember what a church looks like. Man, you get to that moment where you've run up on the end of your strength, and it's a shocking amount of people who hit their knees, start to beg. Sometimes we'll even start to barter. God, I'll do anything. I promise. I'll quit smoking. I'll, I will never swear again in front of the kids. And, and I'll, I'll do anything, God. Because in reality, we can't do anything. So we try to barter with God and offer things we could never actually do in our own strength. I could go on and on with this. This list could literally go on forever. I could talk about when it's 3 a.m. and your kid won't stop screaming their head off and you can't make it stop. Amen, young parents? I could talk about watching your spouse choose self-destructive behavior and you can't make them stop. I could talk about getting passed up for promotions that you deserve at work. I could talk about government abuses and social injustices that don't seem to change no matter how much attention and good effort is put towards changing them. This list could go on and on forever, but the point of the list is this. This idea of powerlessness, that panicked feeling when there's nothing we can do to improve or change or redeem a situation, God has never experienced that. Never once, ever. Go Psalm 50. Psalm 50, starting in verse 1. The psalmist writes, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. I want to draw your attention to that little phrase, the mighty one, that starts out Psalm 50. Uh, it's actually the Hebrew word El or El, uh, but it's doubled. And that word El uh, is the simplest Hebrew word for God. Uh, as an adjective, it just means mighty, strong, supreme, the top dog the alpha. And what's interesting to me here is that Psalm 50 actually starts with El 
El. It's doubled, so it's mighty, mighty. That's the name the psalmist gives to God here. El, El, mighty, mighty. The mighty, almighty, God the Lord. There's another name for God on the screen right now, El Shaddai, which literally it's God's name that means the Almighty, but then it's once again El Shaddai, so it's mighty, the Almighty. It's doubled up on purpose, almost humorously. You know, it's interesting to me when we think about God's power, his strength, his might, he is exponential scales of more mighty than we could ever be. Like Frank Ludovina when I was six years old. You know, you know how your dad, when you were little, could just literally spin your whole world upside down? That's part of the picture here, man. Kids actually love that about their dads. Kids love believing their dads are so powerful, they're invincible, they can flip you over. And the name El Shaddai should create in us that sense of confidence and strength. My, my God, my heavenly father is mighty almighty. He can flip my world upside down. The theological term for this attribute is omnipotence. It means all-powerful or all-potent. That helps me remember which one this is. Like a drug's potency, like a drug's strength, it means no lacking ability to do anything. God is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants, which is really helpful for me because it means God has never thought to himself, ah, I can't do this. He's never had that moment. He's, he's never thought to himself, I can't get this strip screw out of this wall. Oh, I can't think of the right word to make her understand what I'm trying to say. He's never had that happen. He's never needed help opening a jar. I know that's silly, but it helps me think about his all-powerfulness. God has never thought to himself, oh no, I can't anything. It's never been a, a waking thought in his mind. Of all the things God has done or not done in all eternity, inability was never a deciding factor for him. It's encouraging for me. I love how Psalm 50 continues. It talks about what he does do. The mighty one, mighty, mighty, mighty almighty speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. This refers to both God's creation of the earth by his word and his sustaining of the world every day from morning to night, from the glorious pastel colors that leak out into the gray dawn to the setting of the orange of ball of gas we call the sun that makes clouds sparkle pink and purple and orange. God does it all just by speaking. He doesn't have to break a sweat. It's an enjoyable task for him. It's not the straining effort because he has all power and all ability. He summons existence itself to keep on existing. Keep reading in verse two. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So the Jewish people saw Zion, Jerusalem, as the center of all creation and, and as God's home. And so they say, so out of Jerusalem, out of Zion, uh, means out of the center of creation, out of the center of all of nature's beauty, God Almighty shines. His power, his strength, it, it's on display in nature. So think about like vast natural landscapes that take your breath away. 
the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, those moments when you're looking out there and you're going, oh, I'm real small. That's real big. That's right. That's the correct response in us as God's beauty and his power shine forth in the midst of all that he has made. Look at verse three. It says, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. So this is great because now the psalmist is making it clear. Not only does God have the ability to do anything, he also does do stuff. He does things. He moves. God isn't silent. He's not passive. He's not static, sitting back, watching. He's not a watchmaker, disinterested or disengaged with the creation he has made. He moves. And I love the artistic pictures that the psalmist chooses. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. That word tempest means like a huge ocean storm where the waves are 40 feet high and boats are just getting tossed around like ping pong balls. And I love that the the, the psalmist chooses those two pictures to say, when God moves, stuff changes. You talk about a wildfire, it rewrites the whole topography of maps. It changes everything in front of it. Talk about a a mighty tempest. The mighty tempest really reminds me of Mark 4 when Jesus is on the ship with his disciples, many of whom started their professional careers as sailors and fishermen. Their families were fishermen. They've grown up on boats. And this huge storm is described like this. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. That's Mark 4. And the disciples run in panic to find Jesus. And they're literally yelling at Jesus, we're about to perish. This storm is going to kill us, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And Jesus wakes up from his nap, and he walks out, and he's like, yo, quit it. (laughs) And the storm stops. I mean, it's just this unbelievable picture of power. So much power that he is unconcerned while they are panicking that their lives are about to perish. I love that. And I love how the Bible speaks about God's omnipotence in a number of different ways. Just hit a bunch of them real quick for you. I'll camp on some, but uh, throughout the scriptures, anytime you see it talking about God as creator, you should go, that's God's omnipotence. We see God's omnipotence in how he creates. So Genesis chapter one, one of my favorite pictures is this theological term ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. God creates everything out of nothing. God can take zeros and make it into ones for our computer or philosophical folks in the crowd. God, he needs no source material for our creative people. Listen, God doesn't need any materials to work with. He doesn't need paint. He doesn't need marble to sculpt. He doesn't need clay. He doesn't even need ideas or inspiration. He's got it all. He creates out of nothing and he makes beauty. But not only does God create, which I could camp on that for way too long, we also see God's omnipotence in how he sustains creation. And and I love this because this now takes the idea of God's omnipotence and brings it right down here into our everyday lives. God didn't just create it all, he's 
intimately involved in how it keeps working. I got a bunch of scriptures on these. You can write down the references. Isaiah 42, 5, God gives breath to every living thing. Breathe in. That's God's omnipotence. Hebrews 1, 3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 is my favorite. It says, in Jesus, all things hold together. I love that picture. The universe falls apart if Jesus doesn't keep holding it together. He's sustaining it actively. So in John 5.17, we've been studying John with our students this summer. Uh, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working The picture is that God didn't stop working at the end of the creation week in Genesis 1 and 2, like some people wrongly think. He keeps working to sustain and hold all of the universe together by his might. Uh, African church father St. Augustine commented on this verse, and he said, God works constantly so that all created things would perish if his working were withdrawn. We would all perish. If God didn't actively, every waking moment of our lives, keep us held together. Now, scientifically, this is really interesting to me. Some of you don't know this about me, but uh, my professional career started with me thinking I was going to either be a high school chemistry teacher or eventually a chemistry professor in college. And so if I could, real quick, uh, I'd like to take us all back to eighth grade science. And you might hate that idea, but I have the microphone. So, um, you you know atoms? You know atoms, right? If I can take us back to eighth grade science, here's a picture of an atom. It's an old rudimentary picture, but it's enough, okay? Uh, At the center of every atom is a nucleus that's made up of neutrons and protons. You know this. Neutrons, of course, are the ones that are neutrally charged. You've all heard the joke. A neutron walks into a bar. The bartender says there's no charge. And a proton, by contrast, a proton has a positive charge. I was going to be a really good high school chemistry teacher, y'all. A proton has a positive charge. And there's something interesting about the facts that protons have positive charges, because you'll note in the picture, they're all very close together. And that shouldn't work. Because positively charged things repel each other. Just like the ends of two of the same pole of a magnet repel each other. The electromagnetic force says that like-charged items should fly away from each other. Atoms are the basic building block of all matter, which means that by the, according to the electromagnetic force, all matter should be ripping apart at every moment. But it doesn't. It isn't. And physicists explain this because there's a stronger force than the electromagnetic force, and that force is creatively called the strong force. They name stuff like we name stuff. I love that. (laughs) And so um, the strong force is roughly 100 times stronger than the electromagnetic force, and that's why it's able to overcome that repulsion but it's actually weak enough that the thing can still break apart sometimes in the right conditions, which is why we have nuclear power. We're not getting into it. And here's the thing. We know that the strong force is there. It's there, 100% real thing. It's observable. It's measurable. Uh, Scientists are even working to model it and try to describe how it works. In fact, one of our own, uh, Nick Tyler, who's a member here, is studying a PhD program right now in nuclear physics, trying to model this more effectively than how our current models are. They're not good. He's working on it, though. He's going to fix it. And 
the thing, though, that stands out to me is that while scientifically we can observe, measure, and describe the strong force, we can't actually explain it. We, we have no good answer for why it's there at all. I was talking to Nick about it this week, and he said, you know, John, that's actually true for all of the four forces that hold the whole universe together. Gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the strong force, and the weak force. We can observe them. We can describe them. We can measure them. We can try to model how they work. We can't explain at all why they work. Which is really interesting to me. I don't know how many of you all know that Newton... Uh, Isaac Newton was actually uh, a theologian, not the best theologian, but he was a theologian. He wrote more works on God than he ever wrote about science. And one of the things he said about the gravitational force is that we can observe the planets in motion, but we cannot explain who put them in motion. And so, like, listen, I'm not doing that thing where it's like, oh, science versus religion. No, 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 no. I'm saying science and religion are both, actually they fit together explaining what the scriptures would say in Colossians 1.17, that in Jesus all things hold together. I know why the strong force is there. Because God loves us. And he's holding the universe together by the power of his might, his omnipotence. Now, I know some of y'all don't care about that stuff, but man, I love it. I love to think about science. It helps me worship God more that the more we study, we don't find evidence contrary to who God says he is and how the universe works. We find more proof of, oh, it's just like he said it should work. That's awesome to me. There's harmony there. When we see God's omnipotence and how he creates and how he sustains the universe, we also see it in how he is autonomous. God is autonomous, absolutely supreme, completely unruled. I would say that this may be the single most haunting aspect, the most chilling aspect of God's omnipotence. In Psalm 135.6, it says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. So that one's pretty hard to interpret, but what it just says is God does whatever he wants always. Whenever he wants, always. God never does anything other than exactly what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. No hesitation, no insecurity, no second-guessing himself. And where does he do it? Oh, it's nice enough to tell us. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. The places of the ocean we know almost nothing about because if we try to go there, the pressure crushes us. God's there right now running stuff. The depths of space that we can't barely see with our best, not microscopes, telescopes, telescopes, <laughs> or microscopes. We can't see it at all. That's the point I was making. Uh, God's there already running stuff. He does whatever he wants, wherever he wants to. He's totally autonomous. And the last one that is maybe my favorite one to think about, we see God's omnipotence in how he is self-sufficient. Not only does he do whatever he wants, but uh, he's entirely self-sufficient within himself. He provides everything he needs for himself for life and joy and peace without any need for help from anyone else ever. My favorite verse on this is back where we started in Psalm 50. If you're still there, skip down to verse 12. 
You heard Melly read this earlier. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Man, I just love when God gets a little sassy. <laughs> he says, man, if I was hungry, which he never is, but if I needed a sandwich, I wouldn't come to you. You can't make a big enough one. You don't have the resources you need. I don't need any help. I don't need a meal. That's not what sacrifices are about. You're not feeding me burnt bowls so that I can, you know, fix my snack itch in the middle of the night. It's totally self-sufficient. Here's how John says it, or Jesus says it back in John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Totally self-sufficient. Everything required for life lives within God. Father, Son, Spirit, in such a way that they are eternal fountains of life, always pouring out and giving to others, giving to creation. I love to think about God's self-sustained, self-satisfying, self-sufficiency. He has everything he needs, love, joy, peace, strength, community within himself. He needs nothing. And, and it, the reason I love to think about that is, is, is it starts to get more personal for us now, right? We're not just meditating on God's bigness anymore. This starts to get right down into the reality of our daily lives. Like, think for just a moment about how needy you are every day of your life. You need air to breathe right now. You need food to eat, die after a few days without food. You, you need water to drink, and it goes faster. You need all your systems to keep working right inside your body at every moment. You need them to hold together. Uh, you need reassurance and comfort and emotional connection with other people so that you don't go crazy. You need someone to employ you. You need clients to keep your company afloat, and you can't control any of those things. You're not big enough and powerful enough. And God doesn't have any of those needs, ever, ever. He's never stressed. He's never perplexed. He's totally self-sufficient. Some of you know that last summer, um, I was on a sabbatical, and when I came back from the sabbatical, the sabbatical went great, but when I came back upon reentry to work, something just didn't go right. I had a little bit of an emotional, mental breakdown. Anxiety and depression just totally skyrocketed out of control. And my counselor and I, uh, was a great counselor, we've talked a lot, and we don't fully understand why it happened, but at least part of the reason was that somewhere during my, uh, my sabbatical, I started believing the subconscious idea that Midtown had been so gracious to me in giving me the sabbatical that when I got back to work, it was all on me to fix, I don't know what, everything. Like anything that was wrong was on, like I had to repay my debt from the sabbatical. I had to fix everything. It was all on me. The weight of the world was on my shoulders. And, and that wasn't all of it, but that sneaky little lie certainly played a significant role in crushing me when I got back to work. So, so going back all the way to where we started, uh, the problem is that when we are obviously powerless, when your kid is really sick, when your company or your marriage is falling apart, when your spouse is leaving you because your addiction is taking over your life, when you're having the mental breakdown, when it's happening, when our powerlessness is really obvious, 
it's not as hard to admit. But the problem is that most days of our lives, we believe the lie that we are actually quite powerful and fine on our own. We believe that we are fairly self-sufficient in most of everything going on. We, 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 would, we would never say it, but at a subconscious level, we function like we are the ones holding together our lives and holding together our little universes. On a daily basis, minute by minute, hour by hour, we get numb to how dependent on God's power and provision we actually are. And so the reality of God's omnipotence, the reality that God is mighty almighty, is wonderfully and radically confrontational good news for us. It's both. It's wonderful, and it is radically confrontational. It is challenging to the core of the lies that we believe about ourselves. Because we are not self-sufficient. I want everybody just to write down on your page or your notes right now, think it in your head, write it on your phone. I am not omnipotent. I am not autonomous. I am not self-sufficient. I am not strong enough to sustain my own life. The truth is we are finite human beings with real limits, but God is limitless. It's such good news. This has been one of the best things for me since last fall. One of my major takeaways has just been this growing daily awareness that I'm finite, that I have real limits, that I cannot carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, that I am capable of being crushed. But God isn't. Never. Not mighty almighty. Never crushed. Never pressed never runs out of strength. Uh, So now, when I come up on hurdles and obstacles in my life, and I'm trying to train in a way where I don't even mean the big stuff. I mean the big stuff too, but just the small daily stuff. Just the every moment when I get to a spot in work or in a conversation or wherever with my kids, with my wife, where I go, I don't know what to do next exactly. I'm not sure I can pull off what I think we need to do next. Anything, small stuff, I'm trying to just train my brain that that moment of weakness isn't a problem, it's actually a prompting. It's a little alarm bell saying, go to God. Go pray. Go talk to Mighty Almighty. Go tell him. Go ask for help. Go ask for wisdom. Go ask for strength. And then the second thing that I try to do is when I go to him, I try to always ask, God, is there someone else that you want me to empower to help me carry this because I can't carry it all on my own? And it's been so life-giving. That's very different than my personality. I'm, I'm wired a bit as a doer where constantly I have this little thought, some of you are like this, where throughout your daily life you just think to yourself, it'll be better if I do it. Yes, yes, I could get someone else to do it. I could empower someone else to do it, but it'll go better if I just do it. I'm just gonna do it. And you do that enough and you get crushed under the weight. And so I'm just trying to train myself to go to God, to ask him. This is actually now one of my favorite things about my friends, my wife, my counselor, uh, is that they all just remind me of my limits. And not, not always like real verbally and direct. Sometimes they just laugh at me. <laughs> like in a real, not in a mean way, just in a really warm way. 
Sometimes they tell me, hey, you're taking too much on right now. Sometimes they just pray for me. And just in those little prayers, they remind me, John, you're finite with limits. He's not. In the midst of all of that, they remind me that God is unshakable when I am shaken. I want, to, I want us to land on, on one last passage from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 28, it starts, it says, Therefore, the author of Hebrews um, has just been using this complicated analogy describing how God dealt with the Israelites powerfully in Mount Sinai when he gave them the law through Moses, but then contrasting that to how God has dealt with us powerfully when he gave us the Savior in Mount Zion when Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And so the therefore means simply in light of the cross of Jesus, in light of how God deals with us through Jesus, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that is beautiful. Because of the cross, because mighty, almighty, self-sustaining God poured himself out on the cross, because Jesus powerfully did what none of us could do for ourselves, because he perfectly obeyed the law, never had a moment of disappointment with the Father, perfectly walked in right relationship, perfect morality, perfect love for God and his neighbor, because Jesus powerfully lived the life we can't live and then went to the cross and took all of our sin onto himself and was literally crushed under the weight, took our powerlessness onto himself. Because of the cross, we can now be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In light of the cross, we can admit, I'm not that powerful. I needed the Son of God to die for me in my place, and God was gladly willing to do it. It's, uh, it's awesome because we're so shakable, but God is utterly unshaken. God's kingdom will never falter, never fail, never lack any needed strength. And so the only thing left for us to do is to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, that's the exact same picture that the psalmist used back in Psalm 50. And that idea of acceptable worship is it's a lot more than just singing, but it's not less. It's more than singing. It's our whole lives offered to God as whatever. I, I'm powerless and I'm yours bought with a price in the cross. All of my life is yours now. It's, it's more than just singing, but it's not less than singing. It's not less than singing with reverence and awe. God, you are mighty almighty. God, you can do everything. God, you are never stuck. God, you are never out of ideas. And so as we transition into a time of singing and giving and responding to God, I just want to leave us this morning with two encouragements to meditate on in light of God's omnipotence. Number one, God is never annoyed with you when you need help. Never. Man, I still to this day, sometimes I just struggle with this dumb little hesitation. God doesn't want to hear me come pray about this thing again. I've prayed enough about this thing. It's on me now. I should have dealt with it by now. I should be more mature than this by now. God is never annoyed with you when you need help. He longs for his kids to run to him. He, he never runs out of power. He has an unlimited supply. He's not bothered. 
He's not annoyed. He's not put off. I can't, but really? You still need some help again today? He's giving you breath, always. He knows how much help you need. He's never annoyed. He wants you to run to him. And number two, almost equal and opposite, God cannot be bartered with. He doesn't need anything from you. Not a sandwich, not your perfect obedience, not your worship. Like without that, he might start to get insecure and crumble. Man, he cannot be bartered with. He wants those things for you because they are right and fitting and good. He knows what's best for you, but he's not needy up in heaven like, oh man, if I don't get what I need today, I am in some real trouble. Blood sugar's getting low. He just, he never, ever. So he got nothing to hold over his head. It's like when my kids try to barter with me. Hey dad, you, know, you want some of these M&Ms? I bought all the M&Ms. <laughs> I can buy millions of them. I'll spend my whole income on M&Ms this year just to spite you and show, ah, that's not really my attitude in parenting. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much. You are omnipotent and you are strong. Now we get to be weak. God, thank you that weakness is not the same thing as sin. And where you call us to fight our sin and put our sin to death, you actually call us to embrace our weakness to not see our weakness as a problem, but instead to see it as a prompting to drive our hearts and our minds to run to you, to ask for the help that we need every day, minute by minute, hour by hour. God, continue to help me to rest in that, to have that growing awareness that I am not strong enough in my own, that I am finite, that I have limits. God, I pray for all of us that that would be such good news that we would come to you and we would know despite that you have no need of us, you have chosen to love us powerfully in the cross. And you long for that childlike faith in us where we just run to you and we rest in you and we know my dad's invincible. My dad can flip the world upside down. God, I pray that that would lead to some really joyful awe-filled, reverent singing in our lives. But more than that, I pray that Monday through Sunday, we would walk in a humility and a confidence of just knowing who you are and knowing that you've got our back and that you go with us and that you can handle everything. We pray it all in Jesus' name. You guys stand.